Well, hello, Heritage. I want to welcome all of you across our network. Greetings here at Rock Island. Our friends at Bettendorf, those joining us online. This is week three of our Bold Moves series. And I need to ask for your prayers as we get started today, because for the last few days, I've been battling a bit of a flu bug. And I broke my last fever earlier today, but I'm not quite 100%, and I may need to look at my notes a bit more. I may even take a seat along the way. But I'm thrilled to be here because I wasn't sure I would be able to. Because I've been praying that God will move in this time. This Bold Moves conversation is about the vision for our church, as well as the reality that we all face crossroad moments, these defining moments, and what we do in them matters. And we've been getting the help from the journey of the Israelites towards the promised land to help us understand our role in Bold Move moments. And if you missed the first two weeks, you can get caught up at heritageqc.com under the media tab. But so far in the journey, we've seen how the Israelites missed the first opportunity to go into the promised land and then experienced 40 years of wandering in a consequence phase. And now as they have approached the second opportunity, they approach, they approach it with a whole different posture, a totally different response to the change in front of them. And that actually positions us to step into our first fill-in in our note guide. And we give you this as an opportunity to just take some notes and study God's Word today, and I encourage you to use it. But that steps into our first fill-in, which simply is that our response to change, not change itself, defines us most. Our response to change, not the change itself, defines us most. How we handle change, how we react to it, how we process it can actually define more of who we are than just dealing with the change itself. Our stress, our worry, even the effort we put in to avoid the change can all define us more than if we just embrace the change to begin with. I have to tell you, when I was a kid, I didn't always want to go to school. Anybody else relate to that? Oh yeah, amen, there you go. But I always wanted to honor my parents. But one day that came in conflict. See, it was after Christmas break. I got up to get ready to go to school. I was at the breakfast table, and I didn't want to go, and so I claimed illness. In most homes, that may be good enough, but in my home, my mom was a nurse, and you had to prove illness. And if there weren't bodily fluids or a temperature, you were going, and so I couldn't produce bodily fluids, but I could try for a temperature. I knew, though, I didn't have a fever. But mom brought out the thermometer, and she shook it, put it in my mouth, but I figured I could conjure one up with the hot chocolate sitting in front of me. So when she wasn't looking, I took it out, stuck the thermometer in the hot chocolate for a few seconds, put it back in my mouth so that when she came back, she pulled it out, looked at it, and was aghast that I have a fever. But apparently 165 degrees (laughs) is not an appropriate temperature for a child. So I had to go to school. And I got in trouble for the deception. Man, I wanted to be a good and honest kid, but my response to the change defined more than anything else. And our response, more than the change itself, has more definition in our lives than we often realize. It defines us most. Now that's pretty important when you just come from the standpoint that most of us are one bold move away from a breakthrough. Just one. One bold act of obedience away from greater freedom, from a new dynamic, to a whole different level or situation in life. That one bold move, because God always responds to obedience. In fact, he removes great obstacles through simple obedience. We've seen that already in our journey. Yet today, we're going to see that even after 40 years of wandering, not everyone among the people of Israel were ready to step in full obedience into the things God had for them. They had the wrong focus. 
In fact, when we last saw the Israelites, when we last left them, Joshua gave some instructions in Joshua 3, verse 5. Here's what he said. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Very clear instructions, very clear call. Because they're about to cross the flooded Jordan River into the promised land, and and Jericho would be their first battleground. Jericho was about five miles west of, of the Jordan, and it was a formidable obstacle. And next week, we're going to look at the actual crossing moments that Israel had and some of the key nuances in that. But today, I want to look at a few more details around the vision for our church and this often overlooked reality that not all the tribes of Israel actually move into the promised land. Two and a half tribes never take possession of land west of the Jordan. You may be wondering why. Well, fundamentally, it was an issue of focus. And although our response to change can really define us, our focus determines more outcomes than our actions. Our focus determines more outcomes than our actions. Our focus, uh, focus is what drives what we do. I was so focused and determined not to go to school that I engaged in deception. I was so focused on avoiding that change in my life after being on break that I compromised what was most important in my life. Honesty, integrity, the trust of my parents. And our focus determines more outcomes than our actions. It, it actually drives us. And it happened for two tribes among the people of God because they didn't want to go into the promised land. Even though God had said go, they were so focused on what was, what they had, that they couldn't see what actually could be. So they chose what was known versus the unknown. They chose the now over the next, and they chose comfort over conquering. So let's take a look. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to grab it and turn to the book of Numbers. We're going to back up in the history and in the journey to the book of Numbers, chapter 32. Scriptures will be on the screen as well as in your note guide, but I encourage you to use your Bible if you've got it. Because where we're reading, we're going backwards, because where we're reading happened two years before the Joshua 3 moment and that call to consecration. It was about 38 years into that wandering journey of 40 years. And it was in this moment that, that the tribes of Reuben and Gad were, were so much liked the land that they were camping in, they decide to go to Moses and ask to stay there. Here's what they say in Numbers chapter 32, starting with verse 5. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. <laughs> what the what? <laughs> really? 40 years of wandering, 40 years of anticipation. Actually, it was like 400 years of anticipation for this moment. It goes all the way back to when Jacob took the people of God to Egypt, where Joseph had created this awesome space where they could find safety and food in a famine. 400 years, the people of God have been longing for this moment. And these two groups of people say, yeah, nah, we'd rather keep what we have. It's almost, it's unbelievable to me that their focus was so much on what they had, what was, that they were incapable of desiring what was not yet. Not even desiring it, even to strive for what could be. Even though the promised land had been their heart's desire for the children of God for so many years, their focus was on what they had. They were content to stay where they were because it seemed good enough to them. It was good enough. But remember, good is the enemy of great, And comfort is the enemy of kingdom. And that's playing out for these tribes. Just the idea that they would consider settling outside the land promised to Abraham is absolutely ridiculous. 
but it revealed an overt indifference. It revealed a focus, an indifference toward God that, that Israel actually, they depended on God for their existence, yet their ask was an indifference towards him. But that's the power of focus. It determines more than actions because it defines our actions. And when we focus on obstacles, we get intimidated. When we focus on ourselves, we get selfish. We choose preference over purpose. We choose good over best. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to predict that what they asked for didn't go over so well. In fact, Moses responds, and he, he responds not with just a few words, but a lot of words. Let me read them to you. He said, should your fellow Israelites go, to, Israelites go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from crossing over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. He's got this deja vu moment. Uh-uh, been there and done that. We're not going back. He says, after they went up to the valley of Eshkol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land the Lord had given them. The Lord's anger was aroused that day. He swore this oath. Because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of those who were 20 years old or more when they came up out of Egypt will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, son of Nun. For they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone. This is awkward. It's not a comfortable moment. It flies in the face of everything they have been doing for years. Yet they're choosing what they know, and they're choosing comfort. And their attitude was one that said, look, we've done enough. We've fought enough. We've suffered enough. We should be allowed to settle down where we are. It's good enough. But it was not good. And, and Moses was afraid that their attitude would keep their other tribes from going into the promised land. And he'd been through that. He'd been there, done that. And he didn't want to see that happen again. So his fear was valid because complacency is contagious. In fact, replacing courage with complacency is the quickest route to irrelevancy. Whenever we replace courage with complacency, we quickly become irrelevant. And complacency is contagious. It's one of the two greatest spiritual neutralizers, complacency and impurity. Those two things neutralize us in the spiritual world and things of God faster than just about every other thing. Complacency and impurity. We'll see that play out as the Israelites actually go into the promised land and they fight their second battle at the city of Ai. Impurity became an issue there. And it's one of the reasons why consecration preceded the crossing. It's why Joshua said, consecrate yourselves before we move. And it's why God repeatedly called Joshua to courage. Because the quickest way to discourage someone is to expose them to people who are content with where they are, who don't want to go deeper or further with God. You may recall last week we talked about how at the sinking of the Titanic, there was not enough lifeboats to save those who were on board. But even of the limited number they had, they only launched 18 of them successfully. And of the 18 that launched, only one immediately returned to rescue those who were still drowning in the water. The rest of them got caught up in arguing about their own rescue, their own safety, their own comfort, about the risks in, in actually going in to do more. They ended up choosing what they already had 
their own rescue, and they stayed safe while hundreds drowned. And the tribes of Reuben and Gad were functioning just like those boats. So Moses confronts their complacency because he wanted them to know that there was a battle to fight and they were all in it together. They had a responsibility to fight even though they didn't want to move into the land. And, and this directly connects to a principle we've looked at before. Don't forfeit what you want most for what you want now. Don't forfeit what you want most. That thing you desire, the thing you aspire to, aspire to the thing God wants for you, don't forfeit the thing you want most for the thing you want now. That, that choice is always a mistake. Don't do it. It is never wise to forfeit what we want most for what we want now is always problematic, yet we do it. We pretend to be sick as a kid so we don't have to go to school, and then we get in trouble. We do it in other areas. We do it with our purchases. We're like, we're saving money with our intentional purpose, but then somewhere along the way is an impulse buy. We forfeit what we want most for what we want now. Even in dieting and fitness, we've got a goal we're striving for, but then we compromise and eat that thing we shouldn't eat. We compromise what we want most and forfeit it for actually what, for what we want in that moment and now. And, and we do it in areas of purity. We do it in relationships. And every time we do, we always regret it. Never forfeit what you want most for what you want now. But that's exactly what the Reubenites and Gadites were doing. And God allows them to choose, and God allows us to choose. So here's what happens, though. Moses goes on to articulate that they can do that, but they still have to fight. That the fighting men would have to go into the promised land. They could leave the women and children behind, but the men would have to go into the promised land. They'd have to help fight and secure the land, and once they did, then they could go back to the place they wanted to settle the place that they were settling for less. And here's how they respond in Numbers 32, verses 31 and 32. So your servants will do what the Lord has said. We will cross over before the Lord into Canaan armed, but the property we, will, we inherit will be on this side of the Jordan. They were making an intentional choice to settle for something that they wanted now as opposed to what they ultimately wanted most. So in in reality, two and a half tribes, because the half of the tribe of Manasseh somehow in this conversation gets stuck up in it and part of this. So the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of Manasseh all end up never taking possession of land in the promised land. And we see that agreement surface again in Joshua 1, a reminder of what happened two years prior. And, and something to keep in mind here, that forced obedience is not obedience. Forced obedience is not obedience. It's compliance. It's not obedience. When we're forced to obey, we're not really obeying. And when we're forced to submit, we're not really submitting. We're actually just relenting. Forced obedience is not obedience. One is done out of obligation. The other is done out of love. And God knows the difference. Here's the situation. If I could just paint this in a different picture for you, in a literal picture. Imagine this is the Jordan River. The people of God are actually east of the Jordan River. Originally, they did the reconnaissance from Kadesh Barnea from the south. They have wandered, and they ended up here in this region, uh, directly across from Jericho. And again, about five miles from the Jordan is Jericho. And God is positioning them to cross. This is their bold move, to cross into this space. So it is within reach. There are obstacles. There are the same giants. There are the same issues, the risks, the reality of battle. But it is within reach. Yet simultaneously, it's not the only thing within reach. Staying where they were 
was in reach. And the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half Manasseh choose that instead of risking into what God had. And you got to remember, the reality of bold moves is not in the level of risk, but in the level of release. And Reuben and Gad chose not to release, but to lay hold of what they had securely already in their possession at the expense of what God really had for them. And that is always costly to forfeit what we want most for what we want now. Their response to the change had a ripple for generations to come. You know, when the Lord called my family and I to the Quad Cities, he made it very clear to me what obedience would be by giving me a very specific passage in Scripture. It's from Jeremiah 29, 7. Here's what it says. But seek the well for the city where I have sent you into exile. Now, exile is not negative. Exile is purposeful. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is the very specific scripture that God gave to me as I processed whether he was asking me to come and be part of this church family. And it is the reason behind the way I lead. It was nearly two years ago. We celebrated 50 years as a church in our Just One celebration. And as we saw last week, coming out of that Just One celebration, we had three expressions in two locations in our cities. We had our Rock Island and Vita Nueva campus, and we had our Bettendorf campus. Three expressions in two locations. But as we exited out of that Just One experience, and we made bold moves at God's direction, every time we did that, he positioned us for greater impact and influence. And so now, a year and a half later, we stand on the verge of not two expressions in this city, but on the verge of nine expressions within this region that have an impact for God. They scatter all across across the city and even out into the region that we serve. As God directed those bold steps, we've taken them. Each of them are marked by God's favor and provision. It's pretty exciting to realize all that he was willing to do to this point as we've been willing to step boldly with him. And there is more to come. But last week, we spent a few moments talking about the nine different things that he has led us into at varying stages and what it really means. Yet it's really important to know and remind ourselves of the why behind them. Or we can end up being the Reubenites and the Gadites and choose something different. See, let me calibrate you to who we are as a church, because we exist for a purpose. We exist to connect people to God, to each other, and to their divine purpose. This is the reason we exist as a church, to love God, love others, and make disciples. We talk in terms of living love, living linked, living sent. This is the reason that we exist. We live that existence out with an understanding of the gospel, that the whole gospel doesn't just save, it sends. And so we talk in terms of a reality of a second gap. And many of you have seen this diagram before, but let me just review for a moment that everybody is separated from God through sin. There's a gap between us and him, but Jesus makes a way for us to be reconciled, where we receive salvation and life through Jesus in relationship with God. But once we're saved, that's not the destination. We are now positioned to be sent. And the reason we're sent is because there is a second gap. It's a gap between us and others. It's relational, it's gender, it's, it's racial, it's socioeconomic gaps. All kinds of gaps exist. And as the people of God who are saved and sent, we are to be building bridges over that second gap so every individual has the opportunity to stand and make a decision to cross this gap, the spiritual gap. So we exist to connect people to God, to each other, and to their divine purpose. Now, we do that under God's principles in life. And one of the primary principles by which we have to function is the principle of harvest. 
It's the idea that there is an intentional process of buying, plowing, planting, watering, and weeding that leads to the harvest God wants to see. We don't skip through this to experience this. Many people try to live in perpetual harvest. And, and there are people in our cities who move from church to church to church chasing the harvest, chasing the fun, exciting, fruit-filled seasons, when in reality, the only way harvest is experienced when there is faithfulness in buying, plowing, planting, watering, and weeding. Watering, weeding, so that God ultimately grows and yields a harvest. This is the principle we function, not only in life, but even as a church. And many of the things that we have been investing in over the last few years are direct reflection of living under this principle. Many of those nine things that have positioned us to experience God work and move are directly working through the buying, plowing, planting, watering, and weeding realities that God positions for us. And those nine things can be expressed in a wheel. And just to revisit them for a moment, each of these things are, are bold move, expressions of bold moves of varying stages where God has positioned us to seek the welfare of the cities, to seek to raise his son Jesus, to make him famous, not us famous. This is about taking the gospel, the whole gospel, to the ends of the earth. And these nine realities are our realities as a church family. One of the most significant ones, not because it's the most important, because it's not, it may be the one that's most connected to the other ones, is the reality of a regional hub, which we talked about last week. It's the newest expression, and it is our next bold move. And it is not the most important, although it is the biggest by scale and scope, it's not the most important, it's the most interconnected, and it positions us to do all that he's asking, where we as a church family can actually establish the epicenter of a regional movement, a movement of God. The, the initiative we're talking about centers around the acquisition and repurposing of the former Kone building to serve as a regional hub and an epicenter of a powerful movement of God in the Quad Cities and beyond. This is how God is positioning us out of the bold moves he's already given us. We're not seeking to build something, but to start something, to start something that outlasts us, a movement that ripples for decades and generations to come. It is so stinking cool, and it is exciting that he would allow us to play a small part in it, but it will require us to make our bold moves. It will require us to be all in in the journey. And, and this epicenter hub reality is designed to be a center of four specific things, a center of intercession, a center of multiplication, of reconciliation, and collaboration. You can get more of what those mean from last week's conversation, but those four realities position us as a church to be a center, not a community center, but to be in the center of the cities and the center of our community. In fact, literally, we're talking about a location that is in the center of our cities. If you dropped a pin in the middle of the Quad Cities, it would literally fall in the space that we're talking about. And the work that God is calling us to, the influence he's calling us to, he's desiring to ripple from that location across the Quad Cities as we increasingly love and serve so that people would come to know him and his son Jesus. Now, we don't see this happening all at once. In fact, we really see it in an incremental occupation. Although there are a number of ways to proceed forward, we believe that the most effective use of space and resources is to follow a phased plan that allows us to incrementally grow into the facility and ultimately maximize its full potential. So we've identified three phases by which we think we can step in obedience with God. Three phases, the first of which is just acquisition and initial occupation. That's to move into the space, to centralize network offices, and to begin to launch that center of prayer reality. On top of that, 
we see launching a campus in that space, a downtown campus, 600-seat facility. So in one service, 600 people could gather. Beyond that, beginning to engage in those second gap ministry realities and expanding partnerships in that space. That's phase one. Phase two would involve expanding those campus realities. It would involve investing in greater partnership, expanding the, the intercession, the prayer piece to a 24-7 reality over our cities, and leaning into greater, greater collaboration around those second gap opportunities that God has for us. That would be phase two. In addition to that phase two, we would continue to create space for others to use the space that we're not using. In fact, I should have said in phase one, we would continue to lease the spaces we're not using as a temporary source of income. And as we incrementally grow into those spaces in phase two and beyond, we would limit those those leased arenas, and position partners and ministries to function in that space. So by the time we reach phase three, it's a full occupation where every nook and cranny of that facility is used for ministry with partners. This is not just about us. It's not just about one church. It's about like-minded churches and like-minded organizations being positioned to see these cities transform as we seek the welfare of these cities. Now, if I talk to you a bit about why there. I could talk to you about centrality in the cities, high visibility and access. I could talk to you about a return to our roots in Moline, even great access to our communities, the unique prayer hub space in the tower itself. But it's more ministry space and it's more office space, but it aligns with our philosophy of retrofitting building, buildings and not building new buildings. Every facility we're currently in is a retrofitted facility. We have taken it and repurposed it for kingdom work. And we believe this is one of those spaces God wants to do that again. Now, I know well, there's lots of questions around this, and one of the big questions I, for many of you is, what about the bridge? Isn't the bridge changing? Actually, absolutely it is. And the bridge is literally going to move from the west side of the property to the east side of the property. Let me show you a computer rendition of what it will look like from the Illinois Department of Transportation. So here's the facility. The bridge currently would run over here, and the new, bri new bridge would run just to the opposite side, not impacting or changing the accessibility, actually repositioning accessibility to a greater level, to a bike path that comes off of the bridge around the front of the property and beyond. And so the bridge reality is obviously something we would have to deal with in transition, but not ultimately something that hinders our ability to accomplish the vision God has for us. And I've got to tell you, every time I have shared this thing with people, whether it's, whether it's the lead team or, or the board, which again is 100% unanimous behind the endorsement of this vision, or I've shared it with our district leadership, who is, again, they are totally on board, and they've already committed six figures to our ability to move into this project. Even conversation with our general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church, everybody endorses and, and comes alongside with strong confirmation and affirmation. Even as we've talked with city officials, we've engaged experts in fields of construction and, and commercial realities, we've engaged experts in other arenas, we've gotten repeated confirmation that what we're seeking to do is both good and pleasant and, and, and positions us to seek the welfare of the cities in the way God is calling us to. In fact, I, I can't even start to unpack the favor God has given us in conversations around this idea. We're, we've been able to sit at tables that most churches don't get to sit at. Not because we've got a great idea or something that's kind of cool. It's because as we have been faithful in seeking to see the, the peace and prosperity of these cities, to seek the welfare of these cities, organizations, government agencies are willing to have conversations with us that 
and maybe wouldn't have had that before. Even think about it this way. What God has allowed us to do through the Esperanza Center, I see has clearly positioned us as a stepping stone to have this conversation. When God allowed us to secure the Erickson School and to transition that into a center of the community in that neighborhood, to seek the welfare of that neighborhood and around and a ripple beyond, what God gave us in favor there has positioned us to have the conversation at a whole nother level around this vision. In some sense, you could think of Esperanza as a microcosm of what can happen through the Kone facility. What can happen through one small facility in a neighborhood through Esperanza is a small expression of what can happen through Kone for our cities as a whole. And that's exciting. And God is asking Heritage to be the lead catalyst in facilitating a movement that does exactly that, that seeks the welfare of our cities. We're in conversations with partners, and I believe they will partner with us. I already said the district has committed six figures to our ability to step into this. But we as a church will need to step up first. We believe that it will take anywhere from four to five million dollars to accomplish the nine vision realities in this next season. The biggest unknown is the purchase price of the building. And we've started initial conversation but not yet landed on a mutually agreed upon price. But that four to five million may feel like a number not within reach. But we're a big church. And when we each engage, it's well within reach. But so is choosing our comfort. So is choosing what's known. Now again, this vision is about nine different things over the next season, over the next year plus, with various stages on those nine things. But this next bold move around the Kone is the biggest and it's the newest. It has the highest collaboration realities and it positions us with the right foundation to sustain the exponential influence and ripple God's calling us to. We can't sustain that from any of our existing three locations. But listen, this is not competition. There are 200,000 people in the Quad Cities. We can't reach them from three locations, let alone four locations. We can't even do it alone as a single church, but together in collaboration with other churches and new locations, we can. And each of our campuses reaches different people because each is different in its own personality and strengths. Yet God is calling us as an entire heritage family to be the catalyst of a regional movement, a movement that ripples for decades and generations to come. And we believe it can happen in a place like this, in a location like that. Now, I realize that some of you are hearing this for the first time, and even those who heard some of this last week, you're still processing. And it can feel overwhelming. I acknowledge that. It's big, but it's not too big for God. Some of you are still ready to go saying, let's roll. We're still waiting to talk to God and journey together, so hang on. But I also realize that some may even be feeling uncomfortable, may even feel like this threatens something that you value. But in reality, it likely only threatens your comfort. It threatens what you know, and it positions you in a place to risk with God. But I want to tell you that this is not a reactionary thing, it's a visionary thing. And we believe it is based totally in obedience. And I want to continue to invite you to prayerfully process this with the Lord, to seek His face. And as you continue in that process, I want to give you a chance to hear from a few others, a few Heritage family members who have been processing this vision on their own. So check this out.
One of my uh, most prized possessions I have is a gift my son gave to me on Father's Day 2011. And it is a great big print of Tad running in a race. And it's a great photo of him about maybe 50 yards from the finish line, just straining really hard to hit that tape. And on that print, there's a scripture verse that's from 1 Timothy 4 that says, I fought the great fight, I've finished the race, and I've kept the faith. I think actually Ted really knew he was dying of melanoma, stage four brain cancer, uh, and we were not able to celebrate another Father's Day together. But through all his struggles, all his pain, and everything he had to overcome, he really finished well. He hit that tape hard. And isn't that kind of what we all want to do in our lives? We all want to, we all want to finish well. We all want to fight the good fight. We all want to finish the race. I see that tower in Kone as a beacon of hope and healing to the entire Quad Cities. Something so much bigger than me, something that um, can leave a lasting legacy long after my nine years are gone. And I am so excited, I'm all in on this. I'm 110% in on our bold news. Actually, I think I'm like 200% in. It was exciting. <laughs> it was over the top, ecstatically inspiring. And all I kept thinking was, yes, I get to be part of this. I thought of the Bible story of the set the spies that went into the, when Rahab was in Jericho. And Salmon was one of the spies that was sent. And he actually later married Rahab. And she was praying for the hope. She was praying to, to be delivered. And so I just think of that story and I think about how it seems so huge. That city seemed like there was no way. There was absolutely no way. The wall was too big, etc. And it just makes me trust God. It's really big and I can't, it's too big. It kind of overwhelms me a little bit, but I think that's okay because God can handle the overwhelming. I kind of reflect on the past a little bit, uh, being part of the church when we were in a little brick building, Moline, seeing the first expansion, uh, being part of the leadership team when we bought the Rock Island Fitness Center, which is now the Rock Island campus, and then being part of the group that incepted the Bettendorf campus. And now seeing this, it, it's an, another exciting step in the heritage journey. My name is Chris Beckwith. My name's Ben Woomer. My name is Margie Agnew. Jerry Rupplinger. Bob Nelson. Brian Burt. I'm Michelle Beckwith. My name is Tim Howard. My name is Bill Sandry, and I'm excited about the unity that this project will form. And I am excited because God is on the move. This is going to be reaching and impacting lives way beyond the Quad Cities. Center for Influence. And the pursuit of lost souls. I'm excited. I'm excited about the possibilities of what God can do to reach the people of this community with his love. We've been praying about this now, and um, there is an assurance that um, this is something bigger than us. It's, it's a God-sized thing. We're called to go and make disciples, not just to wait and hope that disciples come to us. So I feel like this initiative is just a great way to proactively and obediently go and do that. Hmm.
Man, if you're, you're interested in hearing more from their stories, uh, even getting more information, even looking at some frequently asked questions around this conversation, we've created a page on our website. If you just go to heritagequc.com and you click the Bold Moves banner, it'll take you to a page where we're going to continue to add information and pieces to bring us all along in the conversation, and we'll be uploading those full stories along the way. I encourage you to check that out. Reminding you that our response to change, more than change itself, defines us most. And, and this vision positions us for what can be for generations to come. But it's going to require all of us. It's going to require every campus, every person to lean into this and make their own next bold moves. And the immensity of this is a really good identifier that it's not us, that it's God. And it will position us with the platform and the paradigm to sustain the ripple for decades to come of that regional influence that I think God is calling us to facilitate. We can't do it from our existing places. We can't do it from the east side of the Jordan. And this has the unanimous endorsement of the board and the leadership team. So let me take you just to some quick so what's. I want to again, once again leave us in a tension between now and next. There will be a tension in this conversation until we get on the other side of this journey. And I don't want you to try to solve everything at this point. I want and need you to pray and talk with God. We'll continue to strive to answer questions. But today, again, I want to invite you just to continue to seek the face of God in your personal time with him. Spend time with him. Because the next thing I'm going to ask of you is what part he is asking you to play in this. Our ability to step obediently into the next season will require three specific things. And I literally want to invite you to pursue them this week. Because they are the same three things that Israel was invited to do. And first is to pursue full consecration. Full consecration. It's an invitation to a new level of commitment to the Lord, uh, being rightly positioned before Him so we can hear Him and obey Him. For some of you, that may mean choosing Jesus for the first time. And so receiving salvation, being saved through the sacrifice of Jesus is the place for you to step in consecration. But if you've already done that, the invitation is to new levels of purity, to new levels of submission, to a greater release and consecration. There is no limit to what God can do through a yielded and purified people. So first, consecrate yourself. Second, pursue bold moves. Pursue them. Be willing to make bold moves. Obedient risk. Most of us are one bold move away from a breakthrough. So don't balk at it. Don't look away. Don't let fear or uncertainty or discomfort cause you to choose comfort. Release and let the now and next into God's hands. Give it to him. The boldness of bold moves is in the level of release, not in the level of risk. And Reuben and Gad chose not to make a bold move because they chose not to release. They chose not to release their preference to God's purpose. And in a way, they chose comfort. Yet they still had to engage sacrifice. And that leads us to the third thing. Pursue, that we're going to pursue is equal sacrifice. Equal sacrifice. Making bold moves will require sacrifice. And sacrifice is giving up something that you love for something you love even more. And Reuben and Gad were not willing to sacrifice what they had for what they could have. But we can. We can sacrifice for what is not yet. Or we can live in what has been. But I want to encourage us to pursue equal sacrifice. The vision will require it. Equal sacrifice, not equal giving. We're not all positioned to give the same amounts, but we are all positioned to give sacrificially. And the more resources we can gather, the more effectively we can live obediently into the vision and even eliminate our existing mortgage. When you came today, you received a response card. I encourage you just to grab that for a moment and take a peek at it. This is a tool I want you to use later. Later. When I want you to use it? When? Later. Later. 
I want, I want you later to indicate God is leading you to partner in these initiatives in these ways. And there's four specific ways. It's through prayer. It's through gift and kind. It's through financial commitment, but also through connecting, getting people in this conversation who would want or need to be in this conversation. And I want to encourage you to take time this week to pray about how God's asking you to partner. It is important for us to know how God is leading you so we know what we can facilitate. And, and this commitment is intended to focus on our initial investments. It's phase one. It runs through 2017. So the commitment is for the 2017 year. There's an online option available at heritageqc.com, that same resource page I talked about. You'll be able to click and get to that. But I want to encourage you to take this and pray. I'm not asking you to do anything with it today, but take it and pray. If you're not already obediently giving to God what is first fruits, what we call the tithe or the tenth, you got to start there. That's the place to start. In fact, in February, we're going to take time to talk about the principles around God's expectation with our money and our finances. But, but faithfulness with what we have is the precursor to God responding with greater favor. And so next week, when we come back, we're going to continue to process doing the three things I've called us to, full consecration, bold moves, and equal sacrifice. And I believe God wants to do all, three, all nine things that we're talking about in a way where only he gets the credit like he led Israel into the promised land. And as Israel had to do those three things, full consecration, bold moves, and equal sacrifice, they did that to receive his promises and to experience his best, and so can we. So let me be, again be clear. I'm not asking for you to declare anything today. I'm asking you to pray. Next week, we're going to take time to corporately engage in a special time of consecration and commitment. You do not want to miss our regular services next weekend. You may also want to mark on your calendar February 12th as a, as a day where we're going to gather as a church family in a scoop conversation to talk more details and more information around the research we have, things like hydrology studies and all the things that we've done in pursuing and investigating and, and exploring this opportunity. But again, this week, I'm asking you to talk to God, to continue in the tension between now and next. Ask God as a family. Ask God as couples Ask him what he is asking you to do. I am, I am confident that God has done amazing things among us. I'm grateful for the things he has done among our church family, but I'm excited for what he's still wanting to do tomorrow. And we have a clear mission to reach out to the spiritually lost of this world and to raise up fully committed disciples of Jesus who love God completely and unconditionally. And that will require great obedience and great commitment to love and serve the 400,000 of the Quad Cities and to reach the 200,000 of these cities who do not yet know Jesus. And like the Israelites, the opportunity in front of us is an invitation to more with God. It has real challenges and it has real risks. And it will require God to show up or we will fail. But we have to step first. And how we respond to change defines us. And everything is about to change for the people of God as they cross the Jordan River. So my ask an invitation is to prepare ourselves to live in full consecration, to be willing to make bold moves, and be prepared to sacrifice for him in obedience. I invite you to pray that we as a church would live exact, exactly that way collectively, because when we do, he will do amazing things among us as we make those bold moves, and that will have a ripple for generations to come. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we continue to have this conversation, as we engage in further details and information, as we process realities, as we each individually process what you're asking us to do, 
pray you'd speak, Lord. You, you've been speaking along this way to the leadership team and to the board and to others. God, don't stop talking. Our heart's desire is to hear you and obey you. That is it. But Lord, we have this clear sense you're calling us to be that lead catalyst in a movement that sees these cities change. That we seek the welfare of these cities for your glory. So Lord, as we step into a time of worship, as we step into a, another season of prayer and just having the conversation with you about how are you're at, what you're asking each of us to do individually and as couples and as families, God, may you speak and may we step boldly because I realize, Father, what you're asking of us is more than we can ever begin to even think or imagine what can come from it. But may you find us faithful. May we respond to the things in front of us with courage, with boldness, and not choose complacency and not choose comfort but simply choose obedience. So Lord, guide and direct and lead and may you speak to your people and may we respond with saying, here am I, send me. Here we are, send us. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.